the book of Ephesians. As you know, we've been working on this one little passage here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And it's such a rich passage. I think this week we end that, though. It's going to be finished. And in doing so, we begin in that last section, um, verses 14 through 21, 22, whatever it is there, 20, I think. And um, we'll do that after the Easter season is over. We'll begin on that new little section because... It begins on the section so much about love, and uh, that is the end of our doctrine, a love, uh, a love for God that we know him truly, and then a love for our fellow man. And it's in this second section here that we're reading about the church, uh, verses 3, or chapters 3, verse 10, specifically as we've had this this short, this will be the third of three sermons on that little passage, and we'll just read that passage, let's pray, and let's get into finishing. We're going to talk this morning about the authority of the church. Uh, We talked uh, much about the church, and there's much, much more to say that will backfill as we get into chapter 4. But I think that as we go through the authority of the church this morning and see what authority that the church has been given uh, to make the testimony of God's wisdom in the heavenly places, we'll kind of round this section of it out and we'll keep moving on as we move towards Easter and, and move to the next section in the book of Ephesians. Let's read that passage, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Gracious Heavenly Fathers, we come to you this morning uh, as we ask time and time again that uh, as your people gather in your name and, and want to feast from the truth of who you are, that you work with your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives to help us understand, to see you more clearly to understand your sovereignty, to understand your grace, to understand your plan in this world so that we will be encouraged. Father, we want to be busy about being obedient to who you are, what you've called us to do, and encouraged in our lives to live with victory through the pain and the lies and the afflictions of this world. We want to live in victory over them to show everyone who you are in our lives, to enrich us this morning, strengthen us, encourage us, Give us hope in these times. Father, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's in this little passage that's uh, just so rich about the church, uh, the authority of the church. We've just got one question that becomes what we're going to undo this day. What is the extent of that authority and how do we wield it to love and save the world in which we live? What is the extent of that authority and how do we wield it to love and save the world in which we live? Uh, Maybe a little question, but I think it has a lot of answers, and it's just going to be scraped a little bit this morning, and we see this a passage, and again, this passage is monumental, this verse 10 in chapter 3. It's midway through, not only this little digression that Paul has written to be pastoral and help his people understand, but it's also in the center of this book, and this book in the first three chapters gives us the indicatives, uh, that is, what God has done for us. And all those verbs and salvation and adoption and redemption and all those things that we've come through in the first three chapters. 
And then he starts in on the imperatives, the things that are imperative for us to do now that we live. But right in the middle of it, he gives us a fullness here of the, of the vision of the church. And uh, it's one I want us to grasp because it's one that motivates me highly as a pastor. It's the way I see life. It's the way I see the world. Uh, it's the way I see all of redemptive history that God is summing all things up in Christ and in his church. And he has given the church so much to do. And this one little verse begins to make a claim on that because Christ makes a claim. We have a claim as Christ's people to make, and that is he is Lord. And that's offensive to some people. Uh, just this morning when I came in for Sunday school, Frederick uh, asked me, did I see uh, this week on the news when the tornadoes hit Mississippi uh, how one of the weather reporters had broken down and began to cry? And this is never fails, beloved. We just saw this with DeMar Hamlin, didn't we? You know, when, 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 when the medical workers can't do it, when they don't have any answers for why things happen the way they happen, they don't have any answers for evil, they don't have any answers for life and death, this weather reporter broke down, cried, and began to pray right live on the air. And because he did that, he's made a claim. Jesus is Lord. There's no other way that man can do here but pray to a holy God. So that should be the first thing he does. But that's the claim that the church is making, and that's the authority that we have, and that's the authority that we will. He is sovereign, which means that his truth is true, which means that the things he says have to be dealt with. They can't be forgotten. We will stand in judgment. They have a scriptural authority, and scriptural authority means that we will either ultimately be judged and eternally damned by Christ or saved by his precious blood. This is the center of the work of the church, beloved, to make this testimony here on earth that Jesus is Lord to the Lordship of Christ, to the kingdom of God as we live in obedience and stands in stark contrast to the culture around us. In fact, it, it makes them mad if you would go back and look at some of the reproof this man got for praying on, and praying to a holy God. You can see that the world hates this claim. And it's the heart of this verse. That's the heart of this verse. We make a testimony to the rulers and powers in the heavenly places of God's wisdom and the work of salvation. We make a testimony that all of Satan's lies, all of culture's undoing, we can see it blowing up before our very eyes. I don't worry about secularism. It's going to come apart. I just worry about my part in it to expose the lies for what they are. I want to be bold in that. I want to proclaim what God has said. But we can see in the failure of it the lies of the enemy, and that's all he has. He's been defeated. We went through that thoroughly last week. We said that we are the church. We are the church. We're purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We are the church. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're a people for his, God's own possession. <laughs> we are God's people. We are God's Children, we are God's adopted children. We are the church. It's the only eternal organization that will never be prevailed upon, overcome by the forces of evil. Even the gates of hell are bound up in our hands, in our mission. We are the church, and all of redemptive history points to the plan that God is fulfilling in the church. And then we looked in the second week of the manifold wisdom of God that's on display in the church and how it make, makes known and makes clear 
just like this man's prayer, just like the prayers about Damar Hamlin. It makes clear God's victory over evil, over, over, over evil in the, in the spiritual realm and in the physical realm. God has authority over those, and he's given Christ authority, and he's also given through Christ the church authority who Christ has had over. So the manifold wisdom of God displays in the church makes known God's victory over evil, and we said two ways through the defeat of death, and that is basically through a testimony that all Satan has is lies, and the living of the saints by the way we live. And we learned that the whole world lies under the sway of Satan, like we once did, not only by the sway of Satan, but his fallen demons, horde of angels that accompanies him, and all the evil that's perpetuated that is taken place in all the people who are lost and under the power of of the prince of the power of the air. But we have victory because in Colossians 2, we had that one clear statement. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He stripped them bare. They're naked before us who understand the church. And he's triumphing over them in him. In other words, that's a continual procession of triumph that in Christ we are continually triumphing over the powers of evil and death and destruction in this world. And that's what the church does. It defeats death by saying that it's a lie. In the gospel, it turns death back from the power of God or from the power of Satan to the power of God. And then it shows that we live a life of obedience. And so it shows the wisdom of God. Christ exposed the lies because that's all the enemy has. And through the gospel, we can free the prisoners caught up in those lies. And it is in the defeat of death and the living of the saints, the wisdom of God is on full display in the gospel for the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And because the rulers and authorities in heavenly places, the whole doggone world will see that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. So the church displays the manifold wisdom of God and our mission is to save the world. I said last week, I said it kind of gently, but I want to go just a little further into that this morning. And I said that it would be different if we put 200, 250 people in this auditorium, 150 kids over there catechized, and every Sunday morning that we had people gathered together that truly believes that Jesus is Lord, that the church is the answer, and they come together and they gather in this place and they sing praises to God, boy, those things are going to change Pennsville, New Jersey, right? And then if we put together men and women who love one another and husbands loving their wives and wives uh, leading and, and loving in their home and their children, raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord that we could change the world. That's what God is doing. He's saving the world through the witness and the wisdom of what he's doing in the church. And somebody on the way out caught on. I'm not going to tell you who that is. Um, that person's not even here this morning. They couldn't be here. But he looked at me and he said, uh, I'm going to save the world, right? going to save the world right who believes that i looked at him i said well i believe that well who gives you that authority to believe something like that i mean who do you think you are pastor and it wasn't in a spiteful way i think it was more of a play because he understood what i was leading to and i looked right at him i said i we you and me beloved brothers and sisters, 
We're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. If there's not hope in this world, there's not, through us, there's not hope anywhere in the world. So this is about the authority of the church because the final destiny of all creation, as well as immediate reality of the church, is what God is doing in the church. Remember, all of history is redemptive history. And uh, you don't look in the Bible and see anything about the world wars, American history necessarily, as much as you do all of redemptive history. It's about what God is doing from before the foundation of the world when he made the covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. He elected you at that time, Ephesians 4 says. He chose you before the foundations of the world. He sent his Son in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, 4, to die on the cross. It's about 2,000 years ago that we're going to celebrate in a couple Sundays his dying on that cross and his bleeding, Ephesians 1, 7, to pay for our sins, my sins, Moses' sins in the past, and my son's son's sins in the future. Jesus died in the fullness of time at the exact right time to bring us into the church. And then we heard the gospel of our salvation. But Jesus is the one. It's either Christ or chaos, beloved. And he is the one that makes the claim that he is Lord. And he is the one that gives authority to the church. So what is the extent of that authority? And how do we wield it to love and save the world in which we live? Glad you ask. Right? Because it's Jesus. The authority of the church is second to none in all of creation. The authority of the church is second to none in all of creation. Jesus gives his disciples that authority is what he does. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to take just a little jaunt through the Gospels this morning. It'll only take a couple hours, I promise. <laughs> I want you to see something because I want you to ask yourself a question as we near the end of this sermon this morning. John or Matthew chapter 10, are you there? We're just going to look at the first few verses. Well, we're just going to skip around. We're going to go to Luke. We're going to go to John. We're going to go to Matthew again. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. I love to hear pages turning in the Bible. You're right there. Let's go. And he called to him his 12 disciples. You guys know who they are. They name them here right after this. But what did he do? He called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. What? Let's read that again. I know, right? Let's read it one more time. And he called to him, to himself, his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. What is that authority? It's exousia in the Greek, but it's the authority to tell them what to do. It is the authority that allows them to have a decisive measure to make the unclean spirits obey the disciples. In other words, the unclean spirits had to do what the disciples told them to do. How do you like those apples? Huh? Okay, let's keep with me here. Jesus, who has authority over all of creation, physical and spiritual, in this one little sentence subjugated the unclean spirits to his disciples. They had to obey the disciples. They had to do what the disciples told them to do. And I know what you're thinking, right? I wish I'd just get my husband to do what I tell him to do. <laughs> or my children to do what 
uh, I tell them to do. But they had authority over all evil, over the unclean spirits, which are the impure and holy spirits. It's a it's a demon horde that follows Satan. It's the ones that are telling the lies, right? It's the ones that are already defeated that he gave them authority over because he had defeated them and he had created them and he has authority above all authorities and he has been placed as head of the church. He had that authority to give to us, the church, to his disciples. You may say, well, that's just to the disciples. Is it really to us? Remember, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame and he triumphed over them. He gave the disciples the authority to tell these unclean spirits what to do. You see it as we go on there. Uh, um, he gave them to this 12 disciples. Uh, these defeated spirits uh, were to obey everything they did. He, he told the 12 disciples in verse 5, do you see it? He, these 12 Jesus sent out to ins and instructed them, don't go among the Gentiles. In verse 6 he says, just go to the lost sheep of Israel. Verse 7, to make a proclamation. What is that proclamation in verse 7? That's where I wanted to be. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That Jesus is Lord. That's what he sent them out to say. The proclamation is that Jesus is Lord. There's consequences to the way you're living, to your actions. Uh, judgment is coming. And for proof of this judgment that is coming, you'll see by the way we're living. Verse 8. Do you see it? Heal the sick. Raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, lepers cast out the demons. You received this authority without paying, give without pay. Jesus sets his disciples on a mission, the 12 here. This is early on in the Gospels. To go out to the lost sheep of Israel and to tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand and to proclaim that the power of evil is defeated. And in that proclamation, I want you to cast out demons. I want you to heal the people and tell them they can be saved. Okay, pretty cool, huh? But does that pertain to the church today? Let's go to Luke chapter 10. Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 10. It's growing, beloved. Now comes the 72. But I want you to see the parallels here. Verse 1, chapter 10. He said, after this, the Lord appointed 72. Uh-oh. This is more than just the 12 disciples. This is some new believers that had come since. He appointed the 72 others, and he sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And why did they go? Jump to verse 9. It says specifically they went to heal the sick and to say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. Jesus is Lord. The kingdom is here. Turn from your sins. Turn from your sins and repent and be redeemed. And look what happened. Verse 11. This is probably the way I would return to Jesus. Even the dust, um, uh, excuse me, 
<laughs> I'm sorry. Jump down to verse 17. The, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons have to flee. Even the demons who are holding people sway or giving people diseases who are lying to people and holding them in prisons and shackles of this lie of the enemy, they have to go. They are subject to us in your name. Why? Because you have given us authority in your name to cast out those demons, to heal the people, right? To tell the truth, to claim and to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus very quickly rebukes them in verse 18. And he said to them, uh, yes, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy. And nothing, nothing at all shall hurt you. What promises, right? That we can be the church and nothing, nothing at all will overcome us. That we have authority from Jesus to proclaim that he is Lord. That we have authority from Jesus to cast out demons, to heal the sick, and that nothing shall hurt us. Verse 20, nevertheless, this is not the amazing thing. The amazing thing is, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. But in saying that, there, there becomes this big thing in my heart. Every Christian here this morning has to ask themselves this morning, is this authority that Jesus gave the disciples and these seven to the same authority that we have today? Do we have power to cast out demons? Do we have power to heal? Is this authority ours today? Does this go on into the church? The church today, yeah, the answer to that is yes. Those are rhetorical questions, beloved. The church today must seize this authority. It must stand in its right spot and capitalize on the authority that Christ gives to us. And you say, well, I can't heal, I can't cast out demons, can I? And I will say that you already have. Because, beloved, if God in the gospel gave you faith enough to remove the demon within you, if God in the gospel gave you faith enough to remove the demon that was in you by salvation, how could, he, how could you not believe he would sustain a faith strong enough to move mountains? That's what he's saying here. Don't marvel that I gave you power over the demons. Marvel that your name is written down in heaven. It's secondary that you have power over demons. That is that if God gave you faith enough to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, saving faith we would call it, you've already got more faith than it takes to move mountains. You're just thinking about it wrong. Like I think the church does often. So let's go to Matthew 17. Let's learn a little more from the Gospels this morning. Verses 14 through 20. Because it's in the disciples' failure here, we're going to see something very fantastic about this kind of faith. Matthew chapter 17. Let's begin at verse 14. 
And when they came to a crowd, this is Jesus and everybody, and this is just following the transfiguration, okay? Jesus had been on the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John and Peter, okay? And while he was there, this man came to the disciples to have a demon cast out of his child. That's the context. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. He was an epileptic. For often he falls even into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And here's the part that I want you to see this morning. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus in private. They came to the teacher. Luke 6, 39 and 40 would tell us the disciples not above his teacher, but when he is fully grown, he will be like his teacher. Catch that. They came to their teacher to see why they couldn't be like their teacher. But the promise that Jesus makes in Luke 6, 40 is that when the disciple is full grown, he will be like his teacher. That's why it's so important that your teacher's Jesus and not the world. Because even if you've got a great teacher in the world, like, uh, you know, say, uh, Darwin, who teaches the theory of evolution, it's a great theory. It, uh, he's got a lot of points, but you're going to end up going the wrong way if you believe in it. But if the Lord Jesus Christ is your teacher and he has given you authority because you're a believer, there's no amount of what you can't learn up to what he knows. So they came privately to their teacher because they couldn't cast out the demon that he had previously given them authority to cast out. What was the problem? That's what they're going to ask. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And it's in his answer that we begin to see that this is for the church today. It's fantastic, beloved. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing, nothing will be impossible for you. Now all my life I've heard just have faith like a mountain. If you, if you have faith like a mountain, you're going to live this life fine. But that's not what Jesus said. That's a colloquialism. That's a moralism about getting through this life. That's not what he is saying. He's talking about having a mountain-sized faith, a faith that is built up, a faith that is like a mustard seed, though it's the smallest of seeds. It grows into the largest of trees. In other words, it, it surprises you about how large it grows because as you nurture that seed, as you till that soil, as you tend to that seed, it grows into something that, that's big enough, he says in Matthew 13, 32. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come make its nest in its branches. He's not saying a little starter faith. That's, uh, you know, that's the way these passages have been taught forever. What he's saying is that that faith can grow through prayer and fasting 
into a faith that will move mountains. And that's the faith you need to cast out a demon such as this. You know, it's like a big load you have to haul. You need a bigger truck. You need a bigger truck. You hook onto that big load and you can still haul it. And you say, well, that's all fine, but the type of faith and work was only to be in the first century. Does this work in the church today? Does the church have this type of authority? And let me tell you, this is going to ruin you this morning. We're going to turn to John chapter 14. Let's turn to John chapter 14. Because I almost bet you've never thought about it like this. And it's that faith. Don't let me leave this here. John 14. Just turn over there. Because what we learn from what Jesus said back there in Matthew is that the power to cast out demons and heal is not something magical or mystical, but that it comes through faith. Jesus said if you just had enough faith, like the grain of a mustard seed, you could move the mountain from here to there. It's the power to cast out demons. It's not magical. It's not something mythical. It's not something that just Jesus had in his divinity. He did it through his humanity. Through the power of the work of the Spirit, he moved on things in such a way through his faith in that that he freed things from that were in the physical realm from things that were bound by the spiritual realm. You know what we'd call that today? Tell somebody the truth about the lies of secularism, you're freeing them from the spiritual realm. They're bound in those lies. They need to hear the gospel. The gospel does this. There are so many things in our life that does this, but one thing that this proves is that the power to cast out demons is not something that's beyond our scope. It's about our faith. We can release things that are bound in the spiritual, uh, (laughs) in the physical, by working in the spiritual. And this ability to exercise the authority given to the twelve could be increased by prayer and fasting. Hear that specifically this morning, that prayer and fasting increases our faith and will increase it from the size like a mustard seed into the tree that it grows into. From the mustard seed to the tree that grows into Now to the question, is this for the church today? John chapter 14 is going to tell us this truth, and then we're going to go to Matthew 28, and then we'll be done. Because there's something here that in John chapter 14, I think it's going to undo you this morning. I hope it does. It did me as I was reading through this this week, and I know I've gone a long way to get this, but I want to give this to you this morning. John chapter 14, beginning at verse 12, Jesus, he's talking here. He's saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he's talking to Philip. Philip says to him uh, back in verse 8, show us the Lord. And Jesus says, oh, Philip, I've been with you so long. You've seen God. You should know him. He says the words I say, I don't speak on my authority, but the Father who dwells in me. And then he gets down to verse 12. He says, you're having trouble grasping onto those things, but there's going to be something much greater. Look at this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, listen, This is not just for the disciples, beloved. This is for whoever believes in Jesus. Okay? Catch this. This is for the church today. This is for all believers today. This is for people who think that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over their life. This is for the church today. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Huh? What did Jesus do? He freed things in the physical realm to show he had power over things in the spiritual realm. 
He cast out demons in the physical realm to show that he had power over the spiritual realm. And he's giving us the exact same authority. He gave it to the 12 in Matthew chapter 10. He gave it to the 72 in Matthew or in Luke chapter 20 or 10. And now he's saying it's for everybody who believes in him. This authority and this power to cast out demons and to do miracles is for everybody that believes in him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Yet goes on. And greater works will these uh, works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So that, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified. The emphasis is thus on the surprising power exceeding all expectation that develops out of the mustard seed type of faith. And that must likewise develop in us, beloved, the spiritual character of the power of their faith is then so much in the foreground that Jesus, who when healing illnesses penetrates through to the demonic influence of the curse, also causes the sacred in the power of their strength and the power of the spirit to triumph over the demonic. These words in John chapter 14, I'm reading from Abraham Kuyper this morning. He wrote in the first century. These words make it clear that Jesus does not locate his miracles outside of his human nature so as to derive them from his divine nature. If that were the case, it would be impossible for the miraculous power in him to be manifested in his disciples as well, who of course had no more than a human nature. Jesus does not distinguish himself from his disciples and does not push them aside, but he chooses a field in which he and his disciples are one. He is the son of man, they as the children of men. However, this also makes it clear that the works that his believers would perform will likewise evidence a spiritual power over the things of nature. A spiritual power such that's meant to set them free from the curse as well as over the demonic operation arising from that curse and that they would exercise this power by virtue of their faith. And something more, he goes on, however, Jesus says that this power will come upon his disciples because he goes to the Father. In doing these greater works, the believer thus does not stand on their own free of Jesus. Rather, they are considered as one with Jesus, belonging to his mystical body. That mystical body, beloved, is the church and working with him as their head. Who is the head of the church but Jesus Christ? That is the authority that he gives us through him and his headship as having defeated all enemies, stripped them bare, and is literally preceding them before us in that defeat as we speak to these things as the church. Okay, maybe you're still not convinced that these things are for us today. Mm, some of you are. I can see it on your faces. Let's go a little further. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 8, let's begin. Um, this is just after the resurrection. Jesus is going to meet his disciples on the mountain. 
He's going to begin to give them a mission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which they had directed them. Verse 17. And then when they saw him there, they worshipped him. But some doubted. I love this passage. Even in the midst of the miracles, even in the midst of seeing Jesus alive, there were some with little faith. Some doubted. Verse 18. And when Jesus came and said to them, what did he say? You see it? (laughs) All authority in heaven and on earth. All authority over the rulers and powers. Beloved, this is what the church is doing. It's displaying God's wisdom to the rulers and powers in heavenly places and to the whole world because of that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus makes this claim of lordship. Jesus says there's not one more powerful. Jesus says that because I've been given all of this authority in heaven and earth, he said, therefore, go. Go under this auspice. Go with this mandate. Go with this mission. Here it is. Here is the great commission. This is what you're to do. This is what the church is to do. Make disciples of all nations. There's no inclusions in that. Make disciples in all nations. And our battle cry is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Listen, don't leave one stone unturned. Every ethnicity is in view. This is lordship. This is saving the world, beloved. This is what God has commended us to do, commissioned us to do, and created us to do as the church. Go, make disciples of all nations. It's a mission rich in the authority of Jesus Christ. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Don't stop there. You see the next line? Teach them all that I have commanded. Teach them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of this age. The authority of the church. What is the extent of that authority? It's unlimited. How do we wield it through the gospel? What is our mission? To save the world. To save the world. To save the world. (laughs) We've got the message that saves the world. Let me bring that word in just a little bit for you. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God wants to save the world. John chapter 12. Jesus says, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The world. Isaiah assures us that no weapon, verse 54, or chapter 54, verse 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Do you believe these things? Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the host will do this. Beloved, it is the precious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the plan of all redemptive history. It is the purchase of the Lord's church. The Lord has given us authority because he is the one that came. He is the one who, who lived a perfect life under the law. He was the one born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, went to that cross to suffer for our sins so that we can be redeemed. I've told you over and over that grace restores nature. And in the restoration of Jesus Christ, in our belief of the gospel, is our turning from the power of Satan to the power of God. That exercises that demon from us in that first faith, and it grows into a faith that can move mountains if we believe it. And if we don't believe it, the Lord says you need to pray and fast until you can do it. He doesn't limit any of us in it. It is the mission of the church, and then we go forth with the precious message of the gospel to all those bound in prison. And we overcome the lies of the enemy. And we heal. And we cast out demons. I know you're still not believing your pastor this morning. But it's not about believing me, beloved. It's what Jesus said. It sounds a little far-fetched. It sounds a little big. But start in your own life. Start in your own family. Start with your own children. Tell them the truth of the gospel. Tell them the truth of what God's doing. Save your own world and let us go out into the world and tell them about Jesus Christ starting in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and beyond. Is that the mission of the church? You bet. The authority of the church is unlimited. I can't find anything in Scripture that says otherwise. Amen to that? Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to a close this day, I know it takes the work of your spirits and my simple words to encourage the hearts of your people. But Father, I, the more we study your words, see the majesty of who you are, the more we see what you've done in the church. It's planned before the foundation of the world to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. It is your beloved church, it is your display of your wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God, the multifaceted. It just becomes more beautiful every time we look at it. The more we look at it in Scripture, whether it's through these gospel accounts and what Jesus had done early in the lives of the disciples, the more beautiful the light reflects back to us. The more beautiful the salvation that you've given us in Jesus Christ, the more encouragement we feed from, the more we see over the defeat of the world, we see chaos, not Christ. And it's because of the lack of Christ. And we have the authority to go into that world and to cast away these half-truths, to free people that are bound by these lies of the enemy because he is defeated in the precious blood of your son, Jesus. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the courage of David to walk on that field of battle that day with just a sling and a stone and lop the head off of that giant. That's the authority you've given us. May we be faithful in taking it up this day. In Jesus' name, amen. The man I need to mend for the...